Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Servant Leadership Institute podcast. It's great to be here speaking to you from a little bit different situation. We have with us Art Varger. This good morning. morning, Kara. How you doing? Good morning. I'm good. And we're both speaking to all of you out there from our home offices. God bless the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've, we've learned technology. how to Zoom pretty good. Yeah. This technology is helping everyone so much. And it's just a really, really wonderful thing. But how are you doing? You know, hanging in there. You know, we're under a stay-at-home order in San Diego County. So we're... <laughs> We've been at it now for what a couple of weeks at least. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit longer, and starting to see some trail loss of a number of tests that are being given. So you know, knock on wood there. Yeah, I, I was talking to someone the other day and said, you know, I used to be a business person that was out in the world, and now I'm a business person in Zoom. <laughs> um, and uh, that's just kind of the, the way of the times right now. So yeah, Carol and I are in Zoom, and uh, so far Zoom's been working pretty good for us. So um, uh, we hope that uh, we can add value to you today and have a little fun too in technology. Yeah. So yeah, anyway. yeah. So I would really recommend for those of you um, who haven't um, delved into Zoom yet to do that for your businesses, for your teams. You want to stay connected with people. That's really a great tool. And, you know, think in terms of visiting with your family and so forth um, using this tool. Uh, it also works very, very well. And uh, you can, you know, keep in touch with everybody that way. Today, we are going to go back to speaking about Art's book, The Art of Servant Leadership 2. And we're now in Chapter 7 which interestingly enough is called Growing Leadership in Challenging Times. And Art, you start out that chapter with a great, I'm, I'm calling it one of your great quotes. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. I think, <laughs> I think everybody will appreciate it. You said the question for servant leaders is not whether you will face tough times, but rather how will you continue to grow your leaders and serve your people during the tough times that will inevitably come. And I love this quote because it calls on us to really think as servants and to use a different mindset when we deal with adversity. One of the things that you talk about as you talk about adversity is you're gonna have leaders at different stages of their servant leadership journey and they're gonna change at different speeds. And how do you lead them when people are in different places? Yeah, you know, Carol, it's it's um, we didn't plan this this way, but you know, we're we're in challenging times yeah. now, and the book wasn't written for a time like this because uh, none of us have been through anything like this. But you know, to get to your question, what we learned is that people will learn and grow at different speeds. Meaning, some will learn faster, some will grow faster, uh, some will be a little bit more cautious in that. And there's a little bit of trust in that. If they trust the leader, they'll learn and grow a little bit faster. If they don't trust the leader, they'll slow down and maybe not latch on to things uh, as quickly as possible. But, you know, that was one of the surprises I had in, in implementing servant leadership is managing, I think at the time we had between 30 and 35 managers, mm -hmm. was how do you manage that group as a group of leaders when they're learning, growing, and transforming at different speeds. And, you know, you've got to create that safe environment for people to learn and grow in. And some people will latch onto that environment, some won't. 
And what we learned was you can't expect people to do that simultaneously at the same pace. And, you know, that's when we talk about meeting people where they are. Each individual requires you to meet them at a different place, depending on where they are in their transformation and their learning and growing process. So it was a challenge that I wasn't expecting, but in tough times, you really got to meet people where they are and help them through those tough times on an individual basis. And then you can talk about the team basis. So there's a, there's a combination that goes both, both individual and for the team. And, you know, I was just thinking about at the individual level, you know, everybody's got a different past, a different set of experiences. And so some are going to come into servant leadership. And I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me on this one. Some people walk into servant leadership and it's like they're right with the program, you know, because this is, it just fits them so well. Uh You're going to have somebody else that's maybe had a different set of life experiences and they're going to be more distrustful more um, skeptical and you gotta sometimes you know peck at that hard shell until you get them to the point where they can really open themselves up and let this transformation take place it is and you know that safe environment that i talked about is key to that because when people feel safe they will open themselves up to that learning and growing experience and start changing their beliefs and their behaviors and Mm -hmm. You know, if people believe that the CEO is there and the only thing he carries is a hammer, guess what? They're not going to learn and grow from you. If they know that you will challenge them with a heart and a desire to help them learn and grow, not convince them to try and do what I want them to do, that I'm right and they're wrong, that changes that environment to where they can start to trust the leader Mm. and develop that learning and growing and will let the leader help them. And you talked about past experiences, someone who has been in the corporate world where every 90 days they get beat up for not meeting numbers may not grow and learn as fast as you'd like them to because most of their career they've been beat up by leaders. And so, yeah, you have to take that into consideration. And I like to tell people that usually 80 to 90 percent of the negative reaction you get out of someone after you had a discussion with them does not have anything to do with what you just said or or did. Most of the time it has to do with their past experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's important in that transformation process. Yeah. You also get into in that beginning part of this chapter that um, you discovered some things that were surprising to you. And let's talk a little bit about that. One of them, um, I recall, is that people transform to a certain level and then they stop. Yep. And, and, you know, that doesn't make them bad people, but there is a level where people will stop learning and growing. At that point where you ask people to step in that very uncomfortable zone, they may decide not to take the next step. And, you know, most of the time that's okay. There is a limit on how much people will learn and grow and transform when it comes to sort of leadership. Mm-hmm. And usually that point is when people struggle with, do I do this for me or do I do this for someone else? And they start worrying about themselves more than they worry about other people. And we all have that limit. I I go through times when I have to challenge myself. Am I doing this for myself or am I doing this for other people? Mm. And I find out that, hey, my motives aren't pure. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, that doesn't make me a bad person, but it may limit how much I will learn and grow and transform at that particular time in my life. 
Yeah, people will grow to a certain level. Then they won't take the next step because there's usually something too uncomfortable for them to do. Like I said, it doesn't make them bad people. It's just, hey, they've reached their limit. And some people, they don't want to be in the senior team because it's not safe for them at that level. They may not want to be at a, at a VP or director level. They may be just fine at a supervisor or manager level, and they can really thrive there. And that's our job is to help them thrive where they are. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that's something I, really, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we always assume that people have to keep climbing higher and higher and higher and higher in an organization. And that may not be the case. Yeah. You know, in, in America, gosh, early in my career and probably halfway through it, I saw companies would promote people into the next position until they failed. Oh, what, the, what the heck is that all about? Right? <laughs> promote them to the point where they really, really thrive and let them thrive and be happy. And yeah. even if you really care about them and you want to develop them, and I know you, you have experience in this, you help them grow, whether it's to remain in your company or whether it's to go outside the company and seek another opportunity. Right. The yep. important thing is that you're helping them to develop. Yeah, and you, and you had a great point. If they're ready to go on to the next level of leadership and you don't have that opportunity in leadership, then, okay, if they get the opportunity from another company, why don't you let them go? Exactly. And be more concerned about the growth of an individual than the impact it's going to have on the company. Yeah. Because if you've done your job right, you're going to have people to step into that. And, you know, you and I have been through where people have decided to leave and we go, oh, man, what are we going to do now? And for, you know, 24 hours, we go, how can we convince this person to stay? And then we switch our mindset to how can we celebrate this transition in that life? Yeah. yeah. You know, at least from my experience, some of the times that we have done that where I've been aware of it, people have gone on to places that have made them very happy. Right. And, um and that's a great thing because they look back on the way we said goodbye, the way we sent them off mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a very positive experience. We've also had people who want to come back. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's when you do it the right way. When people have an opportunity to come back, they go, hey, if I'm looking for a job, hey, I want to go back to, to Daytron Servant Leadership Institute because I know they're going to do business the right way. That's pretty powerful when you're recruiting and hiring people, when you yeah. have people that want to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about limiting beliefs. This is something I really learned about from you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's a very interesting phenomenon. You know, it is, and, the, and there's some new content that I've learned since writing the book. And, you know, when you define what a belief is, the definition I love today is something you trust to be true, is a thought that you trust to be true. Mm -hmm. And over time, you can change that thought that you trust to be true. An example I give today when I talk is when I was 17 years old, I had a belief that my father was not very smart because he didn't give me what I wanted when I wanted it. He didn't understand the world that I was dealing with at school. And my thought that I trusted to be true at the time was my father wasn't a very smart man. When I turned 21, 22, all of a sudden my father became a very smart man. Now, he didn't change. I changed that thought that I trusted to be true. And when I started to learn and listen to him, I went, man, my dad's a pretty smart guy. And he's one of the smartest guys I've known. He, he can take on challenges and, and do things in ways that I've never even thought about. 
those are the, that's the, what it called the limiting beliefs. We may believe that we have a thought that we trust to be true. And that thought may, may not be correct in that point in time. Trusting leaders is a great one. If you truly believe today that you cannot trust any leaders, then you're going to stick with that belief and it's going to limit your ability to perform in that company because you don't trust anybody. Yeah. yeah. And so those are the, the challenges in the beliefs we have. Back when we wrote the book and what we experienced at Datron is those past experiences are those limiting beliefs because there are those experiences say, I can only trust art so long. Because last time I was in a company and I trusted a leader, I got burned mm -hmm. or it didn't work out very well for me or I was asked to leave. And so those tend to limit those beliefs. The other beliefs that I find interesting is when companies are challenged to perform at a level you never thought you could perform at. And you and I were both in the middle of it when the, when the business was just growing like crazy. And people would tell me when you get to a certain level, you have to replace your leadership team. Well, we didn't do that. I didn't believe in that. And people said, Art, you're, you're not very smart. You really need to change your leadership team. And we grew an unbelievable rate with the same leadership team. And you were part of that. Now, we brought on some additional leaders, but there weren't very many leaders that we had to replace. We had a couple, but, you know, we grew basically with the same team. And mm -hmm. that was a limiting belief that people had that the people that ran the company when it was small couldn't run the company when it was large. And I didn't believe that. I did not believe that. In our manufacturing business, we may be asked to deliver 10 times more products than we ever thought we could, we could do. And when we put our minds to it, we found out we could do it. And it wasn't that big of a deal. And when we worked, you remember, Carol, when we moved into the building on Enterprise Court, the first one, 30, yes. 30, our estimate was in that building, we could do about $30 million worth of revenue when we first moved in. We ended up doing almost $200 million in revenue in that building. Now, it required us to change some business processes, but that's the type of limiting beliefs. We thought we could only do $30 million because that's what we were used to. When we got challenged and find out we could do more, man, the creativity jumped in and we were off and running. And we could do a lot more in that building by opening up our limiting beliefs and going past what we thought we were limited to. So those are kind of some examples. Yeah, and I think, I think having that basically same leadership team actually gave you an advantage in that situation because you had this grounding where people who are actually producing products could look and say, this is my management team. It's the same management team. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm being asked to do more, but I have the stability of having these people here that I know rather than bringing in a lot of new faces. That we and that's really, that's, that is very important because when you start building trust, that trust will continue with the same face yeah. and the same approach to doing business. And uh, that's, that's real important when you're trying to transform an organization. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had some other fears that you, you talk about, and I, I love some of these because I think they're so true. The feeling that you've got to have all the answers all the time <laughs> is a good yeah. example. You know, yeah, there are leaders who will go into meetings with their peers and their bosses, and they have to have an answer for everything. And, you know, you and I started um, at Datron back in the late 90s. And we were really involved in the details back then, really involved. And I'm, I'm an operations person. I love to build things, been building things most of my career. 
And, you know, we had leaders who would come in and tell me something about a labor variance or overhead variance or direct labor this. And I go, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. And I'd listen to people who deep down inside, they felt like they had to have the answers, that it was a weakness to say, I don't know. Yeah. Um, now, if you just say, I don't know, <clears throat> that could be perceived as a weakness. But what I encourage people to say is, you know what, I don't know. But if you give me a day or two, I'll come back with more details so we can have a better conversation. Yeah. That's okay. If you just say, I don't know, and you don't say, hey, I'm going to go find out and come back to you. What's the leader supposed to do that, that is in that meeting? Um, oh, you kind of hit a st- kind of hit a stalemate there. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know, know and, and I'm not going to tell you anything. So <laughs> you go, okay, well, what do you want the leader to think that you report to? Yeah. So, and you and I both know one gentleman that, that we had, and it took me a while to get him to understand it. it's okay to say I don't know. It's okay. You don't have to have the answers. If you're willing to go find out what the answers are and come back and have a discussion that makes sense, hey, that's all I'm asking to do. And it took a while for people to trust that I'm not going to look be looked upon negative if I don't have all the answers. Yeah. Right. So we're in a very, uh, needless to say, a very difficult time period right now for every company for various reasons. And so what are some of the things that occur when the success slows down? Well, you know, every business is going to go through those cycles. And in our business, the average life of our product lasts in the field for 13 years. We don't make cell phones. We make radios that are built pretty sturdy to work in some pretty, pretty extreme temperatures, both high and lows. And so once our radio goes into the field, that radio will last for 13 years. So when we win a new customer who wants to put our product in their organization, we'll have a big ramp up of new production. And sometimes that ramp up is very fast. Sometimes it's over several years. But once you get enough equipment in that organization, that equipment's going to stay there on average up to 13 years. Mm. And so you go into, once you've built up that product, now you go into sustainment mode where you, you sell services, spare parts, et cetera. And we've seen our, our business ramp up dramatically and then ramp down, not to old levels, but you know, you kind of kick back and go, okay, I can take a breath now and go figure out what we need to update in our processes. And so the first time that happened, we went, oh, shoot, man, we're, we're not growing at the rate we want to grow at. And then we started to say, you know, we ramped up so fast. Why don't we take this time to go back to the processes and see where we could have done things better if we weren't under that rush to get the customer product. Mm -hmm. And so we looked forward to those downturns because it gave us time to go back and improve the processes when it wasn't under stress. Now, all that being said, people are used to, if you're in a retail product business, which we're not, if you're not growing every year, it's deemed as, as not being successful. And one of the things is, you know, I I don't like to focus on numbers. I mean, we have to, but I don't like to focus on numbers in our company. Our purpose is to positively impact the people around us, both today and in the future. And so our success isn't based on the revenue number. It's based on how many people we can serve and help. Now, all that being said, you've got to maintain a business and keep it at a certain level or you can't keep people employed. So yeah, you get under stress. And when things pull back, it's a different environment. And that's when senior leaders have to get involved with more details of the business to make sure we're we're making the right decisions. Now, when you have a high level of trust, you can have those open conversations. Mm -hmm. When it impacts people's lives and their positions, some people can handle it, some people can't. 
And does, again, it doesn't make them bad people. It's just, I have a lot of responsibility on my shoulders for everyone in the organization, not just for one group of people, right? Right. Now, that was a long discussion, and I, and I hope we gave people some ideas in that area. But, you know, the trust, if you build it and they trust you when the business turns down, they're going to keep that trust in you. The people who really didn't trust you, they're, when the business turns down, they're not going to trust you at all. And so... It really has to do with building trust with your organization and your leaders so that in those downturns, you can work the real issues of the business and not have to worry about all these past files and have discussions that takes you 10 times to have instead of, you know, one time answering the same questions over and over. So I've got a a question that just came into my head that you and I have never really talked about before. And that's in difficult times, the image and reputation of the company in the larger community becomes affected. Mm-hmm. And you talk in the book about, you, you tell the story about the flood that we had at one of our other buildings. Yep. Uh-huh. And, and our support system there. I want you to tell that story, but also anything you want to add about that difficult situation of the company in the larger context of the outside world and what happens out there with people looking at the company. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, we've had two instances where we have floods in our organization. Um, (laughs) We mean literally floods, folks. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're talking about floods. The first one we faced was in our manufacturing facility, and it was due to a fire that got caught that started in a cubicle. Of course, the fire sprinklers go off and the amount of water that comes out of the sprinklers is unbelievable and you can't turn them off. The only people who can turn it off is the fire department. And I remember getting a call early one morning saying, hey, you need to get down here because there was a fire. So we got down there, I walked through the front lobby and I kid you not, there were 10 or 12 inches worth of water in that front lobby. And I went, holy smokes, where is this all this water coming from? And you know, it wiped out what probably close to 10,000 square feet of office space. And we had to move into a new facility, which was an office space and get everybody settled. People have their opinions of what you should do and not do at that time. And I remember having one engineer who was really worried about his computer. And I'm, I'm walking through the water inside. We're partitions and, you know, they've got power working through the partitions. And we told everybody, stay out. Well, he snuck in the back door and I looked at him. I said, listen, you need to get out of here. He said, well, I need my computer. I said, listen, I'm not going to be the one to call your wife, your spouse, and tell them that you're, you've passed on, you're dead because yeah. you did something stupid. So you need to get out of here. And, you know, he thought the most important thing was go grab onto that computer because I have all my data on it. He wasn't thinking he was standing in water that potentially had power running through it and go, you need to trust me, get out of here. And we basically threw him out of it. Now, the other story was in our office building in Carlsbad and uh, where there's a height limitation in Carlsbad. So this one, this building was dug into the ground a little bit. So the first floor was about, what, 10 feet below ground level. There was a fire sprinkler pipe that came into the building and two neighbors up the street, a truck ran over the fire extinguisher by accident. And they had to turn that water off, cap the fire hydrant, and then turn it back on. Well, in that environment, when you turn it back on, all that pressure is so high because it feeds the fire extinguishers in your building that the pressure is pretty big and it blew out the side of our pipe. 
at the building, on the outside of the building, and water came gushing, gushing into the building. And I think, were you there that day, Carol? Because I yeah, think I yeah. was in the other building. Yes, no, I was there. And, you know, this is water that's in a fire su suppression system, and it, it only moves once a year when you test it. And so it doesn't smell very good. And it's not clean water. It's, you know, mucky water. It's coming up through about seven feet of dirt. So you're mixing dirt with it, and it covered the entire first floor of the building, ran through everywhere in the building. And people automatically thought it was sewer because mm -hmm. it smelled so bad that we right. had sewer problems. <laughs> and, you know, to this day, I have one, one tenant there who still doesn't believe that it was a fire suppression. They truly believe the sewer pipe broke. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, you get people who, okay, well, you didn't take care of the building. This broke, that broke. And you go, no, wait a minute. It wasn't caused by us. And they want to get out of the lease. They want to move out. They want you to do this. They want to replace all the furniture. And at times you feel like people want to take advantage of you when times are tough. So, you know, it's like a fire sale at a retail store. Somebody has a fire and they need to sell all their inventory. What do we think? We think we're going to walk in and get a good price for something mm -hmm. that may have a little water stain on it. And right. that was the same thing that happened. You, you really figure out who wants to take advantage of you. And then other people, you really have people come and say, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. So the great example past the water thing we did was, remember the fire we had in Carlsbad? Mm -hmm. And it wiped out one of the companies up the street. I had a lot of space in our building that wasn't leased. And I called the, the mayor up and, and I said, Mayor, you know, can you get me in contact with somebody at the company? And this was on a Friday, I think it was. And so I talked to your CEO. I said, listen, you can use any space you want over here. Come on over. And um, so they came over, looked at it and said, yeah, we'd love to move in. What kind of rent do you want us to pay? I said, I don't want you to pay any rent. Well, what about internet? connection. I said, I already got the internet connection. So we moved them in over a weekend and they were down for one day. They were back up running on Monday. And, you know, getting the brokers to understand in the real estate, commercial real estate business that I don't want to lease. I don't want to charge rent. Just tell me you have insurance to cover anything that might happen. But you know what? My neighbor needs help. And so we're going to help them. Forget all this lease stuff. And just to get past that was a day's effort to get the real estate brokers to understand, I don't care about the lease. I just want to help people. And so in that instance, that company has come back and thanked us over and over again because we got them up and running. And we didn't get hung up on getting a good price for the, for the space they occupy. Yeah. I just said, hey, you need it. I've got it. Come use it. And then in tough times, you get people who, you know, uh, you may have suppliers want to increase the price because your volume's down. You may have um, employees that, you know, maybe do something not intentional, but sometimes unintentional that gives you those challenges. But most of the time, it's our, our own selves believing that when the business pulls back, it's a failure. It's not a failure if you can continue to serve people. So you do it with a, with a one zero less. What's the big yeah. deal? So that's really the point there, I think, that is dear to your heart, Art, and I think it's, it's the point that's really um, the most difficult for people to understand that there is something more important than the zero. Yeah, in, in tough times, it's more important to take care of people. You know, we, had, we went through times where we had to reduce the workforce, and if you do that the right way, when you care for people, you know, if your business goes down and you have to lay people off, do it with a good heart. And, you know, the stories I've told is one day you trust them. And because you didn't do your job as a senior manager in the company, 
to keep the business going. The next day, you bring them into a room, you shut off their computer access, you, sh you, you walk them back to your desk, pack stuff up, and you walk it out. I trusted them the day before, but because I couldn't keep them employed, doesn't change that I, I don't trust them. And we changed the way we did that when we had to do it. And we did it in a positive way instead of a negative way. And it had a big impact on people, both the people that we had to let go, plus the people that stayed with the company. And yeah. we did it with the right heart, not with a distrusting heart. When you treat people right, they're gonna help you. And I've had employees that were impacted that have told me, hey, Art, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. Uh, I know you're upset you, you couldn't keep us, but you know what? It's gonna be okay. And those are the times that just blow you away when an employee who's losing their job comes to you and says, yeah. thank you for the opportunity. And oh, by the way, things are gonna be okay. Yeah. yeah, and acknowledges the fact that they know how difficult it is for you to do what you just did. Yeah. And because what we go through as leaders who are perhaps having to let people go is nothing compared to what they face. And the fact that they were servant leaders right up to the point where they left you employee is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. So some folks are never going to get it. They're never going to understand that transformation that we're talking about. And in that, if you have someone like that, the timing you have said is very important. <clears throat> Why is that timing so important? Well, you know, I, I, when I first started changing the culture at the company, I thought my role as CEO and being a good servant leader was to continue to invest in people until they start transforming their beliefs and their behaviors. And some people will not take that journey, especially when you start changing a culture with people who are there. And I have one individual that we brought in. She was the head of a, a decent sized group within our company. And we worked with her for two years to help her believe in, in the journey we were trying, the culture we were trying to create at the company. And after two years, I said, you know what, I've, I've got to make a change. And I sat down and, and talked to her. I said, listen, I don't think you're going to get it. I think you will be more happy in a company that's a power model company because that's what you grew up in uh, most of your career. And the comment uh, she made was, yeah, I don't understand why my management approach isn't accepted here because I've been rewarded my entire career for making the numbers every quarter. Well, making the numbers every quarter wasn't our focus in our company. We we're private. And so we could take a little bit longer to do things or a little bit shorter to do things. So after two years, we helped her go find something else. And what we learned after she left was the trust was broken in that organization so much that it took between two and three years for us to get the trust back in that organization. And so that's the part that if you invest in people and you don't sense that they're getting it, the sooner you make that decision that they're not going to make it, the better it's going to be for your organization. And I'm not saying 30 days or 60 days is right. It depends on you and the individual that you're impacting. And I always said, if I see people grow, learn and grow and want to change their behaviors, I will continue to invest in them. If they don't want to learn, don't want to grow, and don't want to change their behaviors to support the culture, mission, and purpose of the company, that's when I think it's better to help them find an organization that will accept them as they are, mm -hmm. rather than staying in an organization where the company wants me to change and I don't want to change. Right. Because they're going to be happier in that power organization because that's what they love instead of in a serving organization, which doesn't match up with their beliefs and behaviors. Yeah. Uh, so timing is very important. Keep investing, but 
if they're hurting your organization, you need to make that decision sooner rather than later. And the big mistake I made was I invested two years in this leader and I should have invested six months. Mm. And uh, we paid for it for about two years in the trust level in that organization that that individual ran. So let's continue on about something that's related, and that is the onboarding of new leaders. Talk to us about your puzzle analogy. Well, you know, if you're doing puzzles and, you know, in quarantine, I'm, I'm actually working on a puzzle on my <laughs> dining room table right now to pass the time. You know, the puzzle pieces fit together. And sometimes you get down to the point where you're finishing up a section. This, this has happened to me in this puzzle. And I don't have pieces that will fit in the spaces that are left. And so I started looking around and seeing what pieces that I thought fit didn't fit. Mm -hmm. And when I find that piece and pull it out and look at it, it really didn't fit in that hole. I'd move it over here. Now all of a sudden I can move on with the puzzle. Leaders are going to be the same way. They're going to look, they're going to talk, and you're going to feel like they fit into the puzzle of your company. And what you may find out down the road is that puzzle may look like it fits, but it really doesn't. Um, that puzzle piece, that leader. And, you know, you've got to determine whether that puzzle piece can move to where it belongs and perform, or do you you need to to cut that loose? Mm -hmm. Now, what I like to do is when a new leader comes on board, I have multiple leaders that have been with the company for a long time. So you and I have been working together since the late 90s. So we bring in a new leader tomorrow. You and I, we can talk we know how we do things. We know the history and we can talk to them in code basically because we have a long-term relationship. We know how to talk. This person comes in and goes, well, what are they talking about? What happened in 2007? <laughs> you know, and why do you care? And yet you and I have a conversation about these were the neat things that worked. These were the things that didn't work. And so that knowledge you have in the company is very important to bring that leader on and have them understand the history of the company. They don't have to understand everything, but if they understand how you do business and why you do business this way, the faster they're going to get up to speed. Depending on what position they get it going, they may need to have the last three to five years worth of history before they can really perform. And so what I thought was the right way to do it was to bring that leader on, do a couple of days of training and then let them go. Well, today I believe something different. You got to stay close to that leader. And the closer you stay to that leader, the better you're going to understand when it's the time to let them go off and do Mm. what they do best. So you train them, you give them the tools they need, you inspire them, you stay close to them. And when it's time to cut them loose, let them go do what you hired them to do because you've developed that, that good relationship. So You know, I like the analogy of the puzzle when it comes to bringing a new leader. I like the idea of the puzzle with the different experiences that you have in the leadership team. You know, some people have 15 years plus, and I love working with those organizations because, you know, maybe 15 or 20% have been with the company one to five years, and the other majority of us have been with the company over 15 years. How do you get those two groups to work effectively together? Yeah. And then you can do the same thing with the generations. How do you get those generational puzzle pieces to come together to create that beautiful puzzle instead of everybody just trying to do their own thing? So I love the puzzle analogy yeah. uh, on, on putting things together. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, I think we make a mistake when we assume that especially a, a senior level, you know, a C level person is going to somehow because of the level they're at, somehow they're going to know everything about the business. When a business has its own culture, its own vocabulary, right. 
And, you know, people aren't going to automatically know that. Right, right. And so why do we assume that they're going to be able to understand all of that, you know, from the get-go? Yeah, it's interesting. I did a, I did a workshop a couple of years ago. And it was an older manufacturing facility, which I love to go into. And I would say the average age in the group was 55 plus, maybe 60 plus. And they'd been around the company for 20 plus years. And they brought in a young plant manager to run the plant. And he was trying to bring in some, some new ideas and he liked servant leadership. And so we did a workshop with about 50 leaders. And... You know, I, I go around the room and ask people, tell me your name, what you do, how many years you've been with the company, and what do you want to get out of today? And I got to about the seventh person, and the guy went through all that stuff. He says, what I hope to get out of this today is to get out early. <laughs> now, number one, he, at least he was honest. Yeah. And number two, I honored him by ending the workshop by five minutes early, and I went around and said, did I meet your expectation? He said, yeah, yeah. you did. We got out early. Now you can have fun with that, but you think about this young leader who's gung-ho to go change things. Yeah. And he, most of his leaders in the company are 60 years plus, been with the company 20 plus years. And you go, this team's not going to change very fast because no. they just want to get to the point where they can retire. And it doesn't make them bad people. And uh, my guess is in that organization, they've seen leaders come and go. And when you get into that cycle you kind of touched on it earlier when leaders change every one to two years guess what our the employees become survivors and their goal is survive the current leader because they know in another year they're going to come up with new ones and i just read SeaWorld down here in san diego is going through that they've had five ceos in the last four years wow and the one they brought in last year just submitted his resignation and you go that organization doesn't feel stable because when's the new ceo going to come in i'm not going to do what he wants me to do because there's going to be a new one here in seven eight months so those are the things that uh organizations when you change the leaders too much you're not going to be able to develop trust yeah wow that's amazing well once again it's that time before we go off, can I, can I share yeah, absolutely. With, with the group, you know, to, to bring it in perspective for today, you know, we're in quarantine in San Diego. Our company, since we do business in the military world and we provide things to the U.S. military, we're an essential company. We're expected to continue to operate. And at the beginning of this, we thought, well, this is good. We'll keep people employed. We'll keep people going. But we also had to look at things and go, how do we keep people safe in that environment? And so we looked at who could work at home. And, you know, we're kind of hesitant to do that. But, hey, we got to let people work at home, and it's their option. So we have about 30, 35% of the workforce right now working from home. And it seems to be doing okay. It's actually doing well because I'm, I'm, I know I'm more, more effective. For the people still in the building working every day, we have to make that safe. So some of the things we did is we closed the lobby to visitors. We don't let anybody from the outside in the building anymore. We only have a couple of doors that employees can come into because that means that staff only has to clean two doors mm -hmm. from the outside. So we limited access from around the building to two doors so we can keep them clean. We have security inside the building that requires you to use a key card to get into certain parts of the building. We said, we're going to keep all the doors open because the employee's safety is more important. But I don't have any technical compliance issues because everybody still works in the company. So we opened up all the doors. And then the ones that had to stay closed, like restrooms, etc., we clean almost every hour. And I have somebody come into my office when I was working at the office, wipe down my door. They wipe down the chairs people were sitting every hour. And, you know, I'm going, 
man, it smells so clean in here. I don't think I've ever remembered smelling so clean. So we have people going through the facility all day long, cleaning all the surfaces. And so we said, what surfaces can we eliminate that people don't have to touch anymore? And yeah, I'd like to have all the security stuff, but every time you do that, you, you swipe your badge, you have to push the door handle or pull it to open the door. Let's get rid of that. And so we reduce the number of surfaces. You know, if the people want to wear a mask, wear a mask. We're okay with that. Six feet apart, we split our lunchroom, put tables 10 feet apart, said you can only have so many people sitting at the lunchroom table, and we were able to do that pretty effectively. We kept everything apart to meet the requirements here in San Diego. And then we look at it every day. The senior team here has a Zoom meeting every day, and we talk about what are the new results of the testing, how many cases. We look at it by zip code to see what's going on with our office in uh, Vista. We also have an office in Carlsbad, which is closed completely. Uh, you and I used to work out of that office. That shut down completely because everybody in that office can work from home. So those are the steps you got to take to make sure people can stay safe. Now, I'm serving people and helping people. And so I have an ethical dilemma going on is the government expects me to continue working, but at what point does it become too dangerous for our employees? And I always look at the number of cases and the zip codes that we do business in. And those cases are so small compared to the total population that when you put it in perspective for people, they go, hey, this really isn't as bad as people are making it out to be. Two weeks ago, I think San Diego was 0.0075%. So it was one-tenth of one-tenth of percent. Mm -hmm. of people who are getting this virus. That's a pretty small percentage. Uh, and then we did a calculation. If the population in San Diego County got up to 3%, that turned into 33,000 people. And we compared it to the number of people that had it. It was, at that time, I think it was around seven or 800 people. And so if you define the bookends for people, here's what it could be at, at 3%. Here's what it is today. It helps put that perspective in the right definition for people in your organization so you can say, you know what, I do have this ethical dilemma, but I'm also looking at data. And right now the data says I'm okay with what I'm doing. So some leaders, we got to just get to work. We need you to work. Others, we go through this ethical balance a couple times a week. And so we're, we're in the process right now. We've got multiple quotes from cleaning companies. Let's assume someone in, in our and our company becomes infected or even tested. I have a responsibility to shut it down for two or three days, do a deep cleaning, you know, keep everybody out. So we've got that plan almost in place. We've got quotes from people. If I had to do that today, I could do that today and within three days have everybody back to work. Mm -hmm. And that gives their employees some security that the leaders really care about them. So, you know, there's a lot of little things like that you can do in times like this that help employees really realize a lot of it's sharing data. The other thing is, okay, I've got all the security in the building. We're going to set that aside because protecting our employees is more important than protecting a certain room we don't pe want people to walk into, yeah. right? And then we have a nine o'clock call, the senior team, every morning at nine o'clock. And first thing we talk about is how many tests, how many how many cases are there? What are the cases by zip code? What are they by city? And so we're keeping an eye on Vista where our, where our plan is. Uh, I keep an eye on Carlsbad because I live in Carlsbad. So I have a vested interest in that. But I'm really more interested in my zip code um, because that tells me in my area mm -hmm. what my exposure is. And then I'm going to share this story because Carol and I were talking before we started the recording today. Asked her how she was doing. She says, you know, I had to discipline myself to stay away from the news. and 
you know, when we first got into this, I said, you know what, we're a federal contractor, so we have to follow federal rules. We're in San Diego County, we have to follow the county rules. And I said, whichever is stricter, those are the rules we're going to follow as a company. So if federal's stricter than the county ones, we're going to follow federal. And if county's more restrictive than the federal ones, we're, whichever ones have a higher level of possibility of protecting our employees, that's what we're going to do. And we communicated that to people from day one on that. So yeah, we're essential business. We have to keep going, but there's a lot of things we can do to protect our JTRON family and Servant Leadership Institute family to keep this under control. And if something does happen, we have to be ready to respond to it. There are a lot of things you can do in this particular time frame to let your employees really feel like you care about them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. So before we sign off, we have a lot of friends out there in the world who are working as healthcare providers, first responders. These are our folks that are interested in leading from the heart and they're doing it today. So we want to say thank you. Absolutely. You know, I, I um, heard a story the other day. My pastor had to go to the doctor and he said, you know, I wasn't allowed to sit in the waiting room. I, they asked me to go sit in my car um, because they didn't want people sitting in the same room. And he says, you know, that was kind of weird for me to do that. And, you know, instead of calling him on his phone to tell him they were ready for him, guess what they did? They left the office. They went out in the parking lot, went to his car, knocked on the window, said, we're ready for you now. Come on inside. Now, think about that in today's technology. I didn't text you. I didn't send you a phone message. I didn't send you an email. I didn't call you on the phone. I went out and showed my face and said, with a smile and said, we're ready for you now. And, you know, he felt special because they cared enough to come out of their medical building, which in normal times is really a little bit unheard of. And those are the things that people are doing to make people feel comfortable. But as you said, they're on the front lines. Right. And they deserve our prayers. They deserve our thanks. Uh, they deserve all the supplies we can give them. And so for us to panic and go buy a bunch of stuff that our medical supplies, man, don't, don't do that. That They really need everything they can get right now. So, and I think the governors and the president, at least in California, our governor is working pretty good with our president. He just came out this morning and said, you know what, I think we have all the respirators we need. And we're now reallocating respirators to other states that need them, need them more. You know, that warms my heart because we're caring about people, not just within the confines of our state or the confines of our building or the confines of a hospital. We're caring about everybody. But these folks that are on the front line dealing with sick people day in and day out have a higher possibility of getting this. We just need to lift them up in prayer and thank them. Uh, I saw something, I think it was last night or the night before, that one town every night at eight o'clock, they're out cheering on their balconies, hawking horns, whatever they can do. And that's their thank you to the medical community in their town. Mm -hmm. And that they thank them every day at eight o'clock in the evening. And that goes a long way. So if you have a chance in social media to thank someone for their efforts, thank them because they truly are in the front lines of this war uh, against this virus. And you know what? You don't find very many people who are willing to put their lives on the line to save other people's lives and it's pretty special. Yeah. So yeah, we thank you. Anybody from the medical profession that listens to this either today or in six months, uh, we thank you for your efforts and your desire to serve people at a time like this. It's very special to know that we have people like that. Yeah, definitely. So God bless you. And, and uh, you, Carol. Yep. As I like to say, lead well, be well. And this is the Servant Leadership Institute signing off.
Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.